Welcome to Live Leadership, Innovation, Ventures, and Entrepreneurship, a podcast that showcases the talents, skills, and abilities of UT faculty, staff, and students. I'm your host, Brandon Jones, Associate Director for Student Learning and Development in Housing and Dining, and we're excited to have you listening to us. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the Leadership Innovation Ventures and Entrepreneurship, also known as Live Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Dr. Brandon Jones, Associate Director for Student Learning and Development in Housing and Dining at the University of Texas at Austin. And I am so excited because we have a very, 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 very special guest uh, with us today in none other than Dr. Adrian Sebro. Dr. Sebro is the assistant professor uh, in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film here at the University of Texas at Austin. And we're going to have an exciting conversation about uh, just Dr. Sebro's work history. We're going to be talking about uh, his uh, upcoming manuscript. And I want to get his thoughts on One Night in Miami and maybe a couple of other recent films if we've got time. So spoiler alert, if you haven't watched it, pause the recording right now. Go watch it on Amazon Prime and watch it more than once so that Regina King uh, and the folks that help produce it can get all the creds and also so you can listen to the rest of this episode. So, Dr. Sebro, how you doing today, brother? Man, I'm really good. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for, you know, reaching out to me, wanting to talk. And I think, you know, just uh, as being like, you know, as Black faculty and staff association members, you know, whatever time we can get to chop it up, discuss, especially in this critical month of, you know, just celebrating our, you know, our culture and our people, you know, um, do a year round, but this month, giving a special, extra special love to it, I'm just happy to be part of the conversation, you know, um, doing my best to get through this tough semester, you know, through the, through quarantining and online teaching, but, you know, working together with the students has still been great. And that's still like, you know, the best part of the job, as I'm sure you're aware, working with, directly with these students, mm-hmm. so whatever way we can talk to them, get information out to them, be in conversation, I'm always for it. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Well, listen, before we dive into the, the heavier part of the show, uh, again, as you said, this is we're, we're kicking off Black History Month, and, I'm, and I, I couldn't think of anybody else that I wanted uh, to get us started uh, this month. So before we dive into the deep questions, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you went to school, and what your background is? Yeah, I got you. Uh, so I'm originally from uh, Oceanside, California. It's a uh, kind of northern county of San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up going to undergraduate at UCLA. Um, I got my bachelor's degree there, actually in uh, women's studies, and I had a minor in film and television studies. From there, I went on to uh, Columbia University. I got my master's of arts in um, African American studies. And uh, from Columbia, I ended up going back to UCLA. So I really went like coast to coast, literally, <laughs> and um, got my PhD in film and television at, uh, at UCLA uh, School of Theater, Film and Television. So really, I have like a, a different degree at every level, but I find a way to combine them all in my research focus that generally talks about, you know, history of, you know, really Black media as a whole. Um, largely, my focus has largely been on, you know, sitcoms and like, you know, the, the making of, you know, this Black image over time via mm-hmm. television, how that lines with politics of, of whatever area they're in. So really aligning uh, politics, social movements with television as a communication source and how race has changed over time through that is kind of where my focuses are and looking at Black media broadly. Wow, that's 
that's an uh, that's a impressive uh, background and uh, curriculum vita that you've got there. And I know that some of the folks are listening like, wow, we got people like that working mm-hmm. at UT. And so I know when I first met you, that's one of the things that stood out to me. I'm just like, this brother is just uh, impressive. You got this 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 outstanding background. You got publications out there. But more importantly, for me, being the uh, social scientist that I aspire to be, I'm like, man, it's another brother on campus that's interested uh, in in media, but I didn't I didn't go to school for it or anything yeah. like that. So you bring a, a totally different perspective to the table. So the first question I want to ask is, you know, just about the importance of representation. Why is uh, representation not just on the sitcom level, but just in mass media in general? Why is representation so important? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's important because it goes back to I mean, this is film and television, but I'll speak from the a more of a television basis, I think it's uh, even as probably more important than film in some ways because it was that medium that uh, replaced like, you know, radio and popularity. It was a medium that was meant for the masses. It was meant for everyone in America, like to make uh, American citizens, you know, and, um, informed, better informed, right? So if you have media that doesn't reflect what America looks like, right? Uh, as far as like, you know, race, gender, sexuality, et cetera, then, you know, it's, it's, it's a disservice to, you know, how media is being, you know, um, is being, you know, articulated to the citizens who are watching it. And I would say, you know, it goes down to the same film, like these images are a part of how people learn about themselves, learn about other communities and learn and, and learn about the world at large. So if representation isn't, you know, reflective of the world we see or the world we live in, then it's a disservice to and, and folks go on living um, in the world without this kind of um, this reality. And, that's why I think media literacy is so important, being able to be literate about what's real in the media, how to read media, and really not taking one specific media source as the end-all be-all, right? They all have their own kind of agenda or their own, you know, political, you know, um, biases. So really being right. literate of the media you consume and um, comparing it to others, like getting the, always trying to get the full picture. So that's why media is so important in that aspect of representation that, you know, if you don't see yourself you know, it's it's hard to reflect to media. It's hard to feel like, you know, you belong if you don't see yourself in certain ways. And, you know, so much of media history has about, been about just showing one side of, of, of I'll speak typically to Black people, one side of uh, what that imagery may look like. And so nowadays with like a lot of media coming up where Black artists are able to be more in control or have more of a stake in their media, mm-hmm. it, it is a ripe moment for the way in which uh, the Black community is able to see itself in, in different ways that historically hasn't been, we haven't had the access to. Yeah, so I noticed uh, when I was looking over your CV, uh, you know, one of the the, the sitcoms that uh, you focus a lot on is around uh, Sanford and Son, uh, Good Times and the Jeffersons, which is, you know, that's, that's man, that's top billing for uh, black sitcom history, right? What what got you so interested and intrigued in those three sitcoms specifically? Because a lot of our students who are listening to this right now are probably like, what's Sanford and Son? Or <laughs> Good Times? Or better yet, what's even the Jeffersons? You know, I was born in 84, but grew up in rural East Texas. And so Sanford and Son was always in rotation in our house, especially in syndication. And then, of course, later in life with Nick at Night and all the other mediums was able to access Good Times and the Jeffersons. So why those three uh, television shows? Yeah, the shows, you know, they're before my time, but honestly, it was uh, my father. So he's a, you know, immigrant from Trinidad, right? So he, when he came to America, 
in the um, early 70s, late 60s, um, what he did to like, I guess, you know, understand American black culture was watch television. I right? watch these shows because and that made me so interested in I'm like, you know, what are people getting about American blackness from TV? And like him telling me that and like growing up, him having the DVD box sets of all these things, I would watch them kind of kind of obsessively and always think about, you know, um, you know, why was this joke funny? What are they referencing here? And like, I use this TV of the seventies to chart what was going on with black people in the seventies. Right. And like, mm-hmm. and we see this boom of like, if we're talking about the sitcoms, we see this boom of the seventies being this kind of huge influx of, of sitcoms starring, starring and about black communities. And we see that again, mainly in the nineties, right? Eighties, you had like, you know, Cosby run this whole era, but it was all kind of secular, but 70s and 90s are this huge boom of, you know, just blackness and being exposed largely to the masses. So I, I wanted to always start at the, you have to start at the origins, right? And the 70s being that moment where you saw so much about black communities being expressed on TV. And then I realized that, oh, these shows, Sanford, Son, Jefferson's and Good Times, they were all, you know, created by the same company. Mm-hmm. So I, I happened to, you know, one day, be, you know, like I obsessively watched, having one day look at the credits and see that. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I look people up, there are two white men who run this company, right? So that's another thing that was intriguing to me. Like how do these two white men in the early seventies, how do they have the entire stake of, well, not the seventies television, but all of black America's eyes. And like, you know, it was yeah. kind of, they have the control of, you know, instructing what blackness looked like via TV. And, and to most folks, especially if you're not around, living around black people, how people understand what black people look like, how they act, you know, how they live. So I always wanted to investigate, you know, there's so much written about these two white individuals, Bud York and Norman Lear, who ran Tandem Productions. I wanted to investigate Tandem Productions from the perspective of the black artists, actors, you know, uh, uh, script writers, set designers, et cetera, who were a part of making these images. Because although these individuals were at the top of production and they, you know, really, it made it clear that, you know, there wasn't a space for black people at the top as far as like, you know, executive power at these, at these mm-hmm. television industries. What about those who are actually performing these images? Uh, what's at stake for them? You know, what political pressures were meant for them because they had this unasked for burden of representing a whole race because there's nothing on TV like these shows. So people are gonna look at this and say, oh, this is what blackness is. And that's a daunting like, you know, burden that you didn't even ask for, right? So, and you know, mm-hmm. I wanted to know how did they feel about these things, right? How are they able to perform blackness, but also make it clear that blackness is performed in, in many different ways. It's fluid. It's not just one image. And I think that these shows represent that. And these actors don't get their due. But however, these white producers get most of the credit. But I think the credit needs to go more towards the artists who really put their careers on the line for these roles. And uh, we're often facing contention with these white creators. And it mm-hmm. came out to a lot of them feeling like, you know, uh, they're better off leaving these shows a lot, walking off on the shows because they have that star power to do such. But it really also was a moment where black artists started to, you know, um, be able to have power in the writing. They were able to, you know, negotiate things better in their contracts. So it was a moment, as watershed moment, we think of like artists now who like tag themselves as executive producers and all their works for that extra money and for that acclaim, which mm-hmm. you should do. It wouldn't have happened if it didn't happen from like this locus in the 70s of individuals realizing that, you know what, I can say, look, I'm not going to do this. And they have to cater to my wishes because there's no show without me. Right. 
So yeah. that, that I got two questions. I'll start with the first one. So the first one being, so is that what happened with John Amos with yeah. uh, Good Times, right? Yeah. Uh, and for the people, for the people listening, especially our students that are trying to figure out who's John Amos, Cleo McDowell, right? Yeah. From <laughs> from uh, uh, coming to America, okay. so yeah, you, yeah. You know, depending so, yeah. on when you listen to this, you might recognize him in the newest uh, iteration of the movie. But uh, talk to us a little about that effect, right? Yeah, there. legendary actor. Second. You know, I mean, if you ever went back and watched Roots, you know, he was you know Kuta Kente as an older person. You know, so John mm-hmm. Amos in general, um, great example because not talked about enough. Right. And I think I have like in my upcoming manuscript and work, I have like a whole, almost a whole chapter on him and like his story with like contention at this space, because what happened with him, John Amos and good times specifically who played the father, James Evans senior. Um, the show was written without a father figure in, in, in place. So what happened was Esther Roll, who played the mother, she had so much star power because the show was created for her. She said, I want to, you know, a quote unquote nuclear family, which is mm-hmm. the first black nuclear family on television. Right. So he came into the show. Um, great seasons. I think he had three seasons on the show. And then he started having issues with the way in which they were, you know, um, making a caricature of the JJ character, you know, played by Jimmy Walker. You know, the show started being much more about him, his antics to a point that, you know, the potential of the show when it first started, it showed him as this young artist kind of showing blackness in a different way and showing a young right, black right. artist. You know, it was beautiful how they were showing it, but it got so much more about his antics and like, you know, them trying to overexert his like, you know, quote unquote goofiness um, to a point that James Amos was like, you know, John Amos, excuse me, was not okay with it. And he was, you know, in contact with the creators said, I didn't like this. He would stop showing up to table reads he renegotiated his contract and it said he he wanted a stake in the writing because he doesn't like how the uh, the black young black man was being represented. Mm-hmm, and it mm-hmm. got to a point that um, John Amos was, you know, again, he was showing up to things uh, late or on time because he wanted them to actually take him seriously. But it got to a point that, you know, Tandem said to him, you know, and, and not so many words, you're, you're, you know, we can do the show without you. And that's kind of how he was written off the show. And I think, you know, yeah, there's quotes like, I look up interviews of him as part of my work. He has quotes talking about how the creators of, of Tandem Productions, specifically Norman Lear, was like, you know, um, you are a, uh, what's he called? Like, like a, you're a force that's like, you know, a, an undesirable force or like really yeah, you're kind of yeah. doing too much. And really when it comes to the show, we can do without you, right? Or disruptive force, excuse me. He says you're a disruptive force and you know, next season will continue to go, but it won't go with, with you in it. So, you know, that's how effectively he's written off. If you know anything about Good Times, the, you know, the damn, damn, damn episode when yeah, he's yeah. like crying because it, exactly, yeah, they kill him off the show. But there's so much policy. There's so many things going on behind the scenes that, you know, I'm hoping to help bring the light. A lot of folks know about, it, especially if they live through these shows. But what it says about individuals who stick up for what they believe in and what they have at stake. And I think in this, in that moment, particularly the way that certain things were written as far as, you know, actors, you know, um, their power on a set was much different. So they really did risk their careers in, you know, fighting against, you know, imagery that they didn't agree with. And stories like that need to be told, like this kind of activism we see in mm-hmm. the media has been there. And mm-hmm. it was, at, and, and I think it's hard now for folks, but I think how hard it was then, you know, where there right. is no, 
there's no power at top that looks like you, you know, and you're really probably getting paid less than a, a white counterpart show, like all in the family, mm-hmm. but you have the same exact numbers. Right. Exactly. So when you think about things like that, like these, what was at stake for these artists, then it really paints a picture of how we see media now. And I always like to start at the origin. So that's yeah. why. I- and so along those same lines, that second part to my question is how did that impact the role of the black father, because you said a whole lot of stuff there, right? You yeah. got you cut you're in the you're in the seventies, uh, making their way into the eighties. But then you also think about you, you said so much stuff there, and I want to make sure I capture it. Gotcha. You talked about uh, Esther Roll uh, being influential and in making sure that there was a black father in that right. picture. But then I think about when you fast forward to what Miller Boyette did with Family Matters, right? Mm-hmm. And Harriet was the actual central character, was supposed to have been, but Carl ends up being the emphasis. And then, of course, you get to Steve Urkel and you kind of have the same dueling yeah. effect. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that image of the Black father there. And then we can come back to that other part. Yeah. And what, what it did really, because you think about Black fatherhood, like going from um, good times and you have, you know, Jefferson's comes out, but like. Jefferson's really, you know, at that point, the child Lionel was already an adult, so it wasn't the same right. black fatherhood. We, saw, we didn't see him raising him, right? What right. we saw next, really, as far as a popularized black fatherhood was, you know, Bill Cosby and the Cosby Show mm-hmm. um, in 83, I believe. So, and what changed with that was you go from the 70s moment of, you know, kind of right off the, the, the heels of, you know, civil rights movement. It's it's called the air, the, the TV historians call the 70s like this um, era of relevance. Mm-hmm. where they're actually using like social talking about social justice issues in tv the very liberal etc mm-hmm. when you get to the 80s um you come into like you know this idea of you know reaganomics where you know ronald reagan yeah, yeah. it's all about trying to outcast like the black people who are who quote unquote are stereotyped to use welfare people who are on, black men on the streets in jail so what they did was to you know um ignore that that kind of um that talk in, in um in real life what they did is on tv they created this kind of this world in which of a kind of perfection you know when you look at cosby show right and so you get this kind of conservative father figure in bill cosby of course you know who uh through you know we like he put possible we don't mess with bill cosby but it's right but want to make that a distinction folks we make it a distinction i make that very clear that is a, someone who, who performs to be and but the totally different, the Heathcliff Hustle is, is not the same father that James Evans Sr. is, right? Like their, their livelihood, James Evans Sr. works, you know, two, three jobs, like, you know, uh, washing dishes at a diner and then, then he goes to wash cars at, at, at a car wash, right? Very much, you know, working class, working day and night to provide for his family, living in the projects, you know, but still finding those good times in life, it come, which comes with, you know, the title of the show, finding the times in life where you can make ends meet and still, and still be a happy family. Uh, Cosby show is about, you know, a family that, you know, financial means are never, or never a discussion of the show at all. Never. It really is about how this black family lives. And, you know, it's simply like that, which I think, you know, it is a good breath of fresh air coming from the seventies. I think the best shows are have a mixture of both. Which is why I think, you know, uh, coming to Family Matters in the 90s, well, 89, um, I think comes a good kind of uh, transition from like kind of the perfection that is the Huxtables to kind of more, you know, middle class sensibilities. They do talk about a lot of issues of like, you know, uh, economics in the family and just running a household, et cetera, that I would say lost in the 80s a bit. So I think you realize these trends that continue, they're trying to like with, with, with Cosby, they kind of 
erase the history of what was happening with like these lower income working class fathers. And I would say when they brought back in, you know, and the Winslows, they're kind of bringing back more in, but that goes to like the nineties, what's happening in the nineties in general, you know, the the hip hop as of like black people becoming more in the middle class. So like those all come into effect and like how we start to see this development of black fathers changing over time too. And that's important to note because I think, you know, when I look at the image of James from Good Times, he was strong, you know, exactly. but, but he was also cast as this, uh, just this dominant uh, borderline. Like if you talk about the stereotype of a black father, like the spankings and the threats sure. and all that other stuff, but he was present in that home and in his kids' lives. And like mm-hmm. you said, then we fast forward. Uh, and even in Sanford, it's, uh, you know, Lamont is grown, you know, mm-hmm. live, living there with Fred, right? And and, and, and as it goes on, it's, it's not until the 80s that we start to get that, you know, a semblance of Black life. But then, now some people may be listening to this and going, now, wait a second. The Cosby's talked about economics that one episode when Theo uh-huh. did the Monopoly. They did the Monopoly money with, yeah. when, he, when Theo told Cliff he wasn't episode going to college. Yeah, episode one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's my favorite episode. That, oh, that's yeah, that's one of my favorites. Yeah. When I showed that show, in, like, I teach a, uh, I teach a you know, a history of black television comedy course. Mm-hmm. That is the episode I show. Um, I think it was a great, one of the best pilots, you know. Oh, hands down. Yeah. But yeah, they talked about it. Yeah. But it's not. That is not an ingrained part of the show at all. Exactly. At all. At all. But I'm with you. I do think that there does need to be a a balance in representation. You said something else earlier about, you know, uh, your your father immigrated here from Trinidad and then um, by in doing so, utilizing uh, media to understand black life. Do you think that the imagery that was that has been put out there historically uh, in the media. Do you think that that's had an impact on how our uh, brothers and sisters in the diaspora uh, in Africa and in the islands and in other uh, countries, not here in the United States, do you think that that's had a uh, impact on re- our relationship with one another? Uh, yeah, I think so. Cause I mean, it, cause it comes down to like most of them, it's like, what else would they go off of? Right. So like, that's what their imagery is. So you know, uh, and it actually comes to the point that I have a great example for this, like Fred, uh, Red Fox, who plays Sanford, mm-hmm. and he plays mm-hmm. Fred Sanford, the, the main character in Sanford and Son, right? He once, funny enough, went to Trinidad. Um, a lot of folks don't know Red Fox started off as like this blue co- comedy, stand-up comedy person, very raunchy, very dirty, you know, all that, right? And then he switched, he switched that persona to be on national television, right? Certain curse words can't be used, all this stuff is definitely not this kind of larger, you know, he was very large on the sexual innuendos, all that stuff, right? And in his like late night comedy. So what he did, he flew to Trinidad for a comedy show, but everyone in Trinidad knows him as knows him as Fred Sanford, not as Red Fox. So he did a comedy show as Red Fox, and they were appalled. They're like, who's this isn't Fred Sanford? They're like, no, this is this is the real Red Fox. So that makes it clear that people are understanding blackness and black manhood, especially in the seventies moment where like, you know, that's the, that's the black show in 1972 to 74 before good times comes. Mm -hmm. That's how they understand American blackness through Mm -hmm. looking at this individual. Right. And so, 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 so entrenched that when it comes to his comedy, they think that that's him, but that's not him. That's the character he performs. So making it clear that, yeah, I, I think through the diaspora, like, especially in that time period, uh, there wasn't much much to go off of as far as our, our identification of their identification of you know what uh, American blackness may look like. 
versus, um, you know, uh, nowadays I would say like, you know, with, with America being this, you know, superpower that it is and American media being everywhere. I think folks have a better chance now of looking at diverse forms of American media sure, and like to sure. piece together like different things and more fluid imagery of black people as a whole. But mm-hmm. in that period, Sanderson was, there's a book called like by Timothy Havens called black television travels. Sanderson, good time. Jefferson's were one of, were like extremely popular everywhere in the U S you know what I mean? And they got, especially in the, you know, the, throughout the diaspora in Africa and like, you know, in the uh, black areas of like Amsterdam and like London and the UK, uh, these shows were extremely popular in the Caribbean mm-hmm. too, because again, that, that was their way of, you know, seeing their other, their, their black brothers and sisters in America. And so with that, that was their, their insight into what these shows look like. So that's another reason why these shows are so important in the seventies moment that they had so much rested on their, their shoulders for like how they're going to represent themselves, but who's writing for them, who makes the final say so on these shows, white producers. So mm-hmm. the points in where, Black wires came about more, or these white actors, sorry, these black actors started getting more power. That's what I talk about. You, you can see episodes that are very clearly written by black black writers versus by versus white writers. You can tell just watching them yeah. what comes out in these episodes. So I, I analyze those points because it's so important to see once this kind of black power comes into the production space, how these shows are able to maneuver and talk about more of a fluid black identity. Mm-hmm. Man, you're dropping so many. Uh gems on us right here and and, and we're we gonna have to have a whole nother conversation about uh just this, this timeline and i'm gonna have to have you come talk to my class because hey i would love to because i teach i teach a class called interpreting uh black rage over in college of liberal arts to some to honor students yeah. and one of the things i talk to people about is i was like look just because it's soulful doesn't mean these folks ain't angry okay yeah. uh, I, ga- I gave the example of you know sammy davis jr singing mr bojangles i'm like watch the performance don't just listen to the song watch how the movements are aggressive intense and so i i, I i'm gonna have to have you come talk let's uh, shift gears yeah. Let's shift gears because I got to talk one night in Miami. So again, <laughs> if you haven't watched the show or the movie, please get on Amazon Prime, watch it, and then come back after you've paused this recording because I don't want to spoil it for folks because we're going to talk the movie. Brother, what what, what are your thoughts? Talk, on about, talk what, about Black Rage. Yes, <laughs> yes. Do, do us a favor, though. Introduce One Night in Miami to our audience for the folks that are, are tempted to watch it uh, after this, and then let's let let's talk this thing out. Cause I I've been waiting to talk about this in a public space with folks for a long for a couple of weeks now, and yeah. you get to be the first person I get to have an in depth conversation <laughs> with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> man, it, it, it was it was a lot, and it was beautiful. So, first shout out to Regina King, who's you know iconic in everything that she does. Oh yeah. And, you know, oh yeah. I just, you know, I, I need to meet her. But in general, uh, so it is a beautiful story. You know, it's based off of a play. I believe the play uh, introduced, like, I believe 2016 was the premiere of the play. No, sorry, sorry. Uh, 2013 and 2016 has some shows as well, too. But it's based off a play called One Night in Miami, a uh, play by uh, this playwright named Kemp, Kemp Powers, K-E-M-P, right? Um, and it's a play that chronicles, you know, uh, Cat, well, Muhammad Ali, at that time, he's known as Cassius Clay still. Um, the boxer, Malcolm X, uh, you know, uh, at this point, you know, iconic, you know, uh, a leader within the nation of Islam, mm-hmm. you know, um, talks about Sam Cooke, this influential singer, songwriter, and recording producer, 
and the star and her running back, Jim Brown, literally fresh off of a all-star season, fresh off of winning the Super Bowl, you know, just he was on top of the world, right? These four individuals at the top of their craft, the most known, um, the most probably wanted with Malcolm X, you know, the most uh, surveilled black men, I would say in the world at this point, at this point, right? And all, all leaders in their specific fields and, and areas. So Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, and uh, Sam Cooke, in this night in Miami in 1964, this is right after um, Muhammad Ali was catch K at the time, Muhammad Ali uh, won the title fight over Sonny Liston, mm-hmm. right? And the, this is a huge world-renowned fight. People were waiting for this. Um, Cassius Clay was the underdog, but he was like 22 at the time, huge. right? And so it was this moment where Black people are like, he is seen kind of like, like this large savior in the Black community, especially when it comes to, through boxing. So you know, everyone's eyes are on this young up and coming boxer and he seeks mentorship and a friendship with like Malcolm X, Jim Brown and Sam Cooke. And there's, so this one night in Miami is a, this meeting of these four individuals actually did happen, but no one knows the actual conversation that happened. They met at a hotel in Miami um, before going out for the evening to celebrate uh, Muhammad Ali's win. So this writer, Kim Powers kind of, you know, creates this discussion and this in this dialogue that happens between the four individuals mm-hmm. uh, that all lines together this watershed moment in 1964 you know we don't really know what they talked about in that room but this writer kind of based his stage play on like the possibility of what was discussed in that room and like how it really literally each individual changed american history not just black history american history forever after this conversation and so like you know whether through um sports through music or through activism Mm -hmm. this night in miami you know branched off completely different stories for the four of these individuals following you know and as of right now only person still living is you know jim brown and i'm sure he'll probably never say what really went down in in that in that hotel room discussion but to feel like a fly in the wall in this in this because like it's based off a play so the dialogue is is this beautiful and feeling like a fly on the wall in that room like what would it can you imagine being in a conversation with these four people who just literally are icons in, 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 in black culture and black history and black life. But yeah, like that's kind of the, the essence of what happened in the one night in Miami. Right. And right. Without, without spoiling too much on it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk offline at some point about my, my <laughs> favorite quotes from the movie. But the reason why I wanted to talk about it is because, you know, some people are looking at this and I've seen it on social media. There are a lot of folks that are like, why now? Like, like what, what's, what's the relevance of that night to now? And I'm just sitting there all wide eyed going, are you kidding me? What do you mean? Why now? Like, why not now? When right. you look at what's going on in America today, uh, especially, you know, a couple of weeks ago on January the 6th, I'm sitting here going that conversation from 1964 is just as relevant on February 3rd, 2021. Talk to the students that are listening to this that are one that may be wondering that same thing. Like, why is a film like this just as important now? Those dialogues and those um, conversations between these men. Why is it just as important today as it was in 64? This kind of story is timeless, you know, and it makes it clear that, you know, things in American history are, you know, they are the way they are for a reason. And they last over time because (laughs) thinking about the, you know, the structure of what American racial relations and, you know, this racial hierarchy is built on, that is why these things are still relevant now. Everything they're saying is, 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 is still a discussion we have now. Like I think of 
these folks that you know Malcolm X was seen as 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 a threat to well at this point he he's uh, uh, seen as a threat to you know the establishment of, of American democracy mm-hmm. and he's even seen as a threat to his own uh, nation of Islam who he grew right so he is right. living in complete fear and what happens once he's enlightened that is when he is murdered right <laughs> and you think of individuals like yeah same with you know um, Sam Cooke he's this person who literally. And part of the large conversation of this film is that he has the largest impact or the, the capability for the largest impact of all these individuals. And like, how is he using this impact? He's a black man who's making money. He owns his own masters. And we know it comes to music production. That's where the money is. So like, mm-hmm. again, this unasked for burden of, you know, what you're gonna do for the black people. And I think that, that like it falls on these individual shoulders. Like they didn't ask for this, but they're doing it. And like what that's, they put their own lives at stake at, at all times. So, and I think of, you know, individuals now who are in these streets doing the activism, doing the work, um, these unasked for burdens and like all these, this, this culture that they're, they're, they're holding on their shoulders, it's extremely relevant. Just like the TV shows I talk about, they would, there would not be the shows in which we see now without the history of the shows that, that were there in, in, uh, in previously. Mm-hmm. This history really makes it clear that one, Many things aren't changed. Every every conversation it had in this film could be redirected to the now. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, every I think of like you know Kaepernick in sports, right? I think of right, right. You know, I think of Kaepernick in sports. I, I think of anyone like you know uh, Black Lives Matter. The individuals on top of Black Lives Matter, you know, being threatened and called terrorists. You know, same way Malcolm X was. I think of you know singers who are, you know, accepting or not accepting, you know, performing at the Super Bowl due to how race is per- perpetuated and, 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 um, and discussed in the NFL. All these things are still like people put these celebrities on, on a certain pedestal and expectation of them. And a lot of them, they follow that through that because they do, they do believe in these things as well, too. But and you think it's, it's high now, like think of how much pressure and how much more difficult it was for those individuals in 64. Wow. Right. Where, where, you know, uh, the livelihood and your safety is, is, especially in Malcolm X's case, is you're always looking over your shoulder. Right. And you have your own people coming after you, too. And I think it's so much relevant today, like looking at the way social media influences how we someone could be canceled in, in, in one day mm-hmm. and and, you know, uh, held up to his pedestal in the day before. This is is really an era where an era and like, like a kind of at times where you know that label of a black celebrity is is, is fearful, you know, and it's it comes with this level of you know feeling like you you have a burden of representing representing things. Whereas at times I, I I do agree with like you know you have this pedestal. How are you using it? But also thinking about the fear that comes with that, and thinking about you know these people are human and human beings, mm-hmm. but how they were treated over time, you know literally risking their lives every day for what they felt was right and for the, and, and, to, and to make their voice heard where you have so many individuals who are telling them, no, make your money and, and ignore all this stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's so much the case with these four individuals. And like, when you think of black people that recreated the status of blackness and, and black men and just blackness in general in, in American history, you have to mention these four people among, among others, of course, but there's no argument that these four people are huge in that aspect. 
Right, right. Oh my gosh, this is this is why I wish I'd have canceled my next meeting because I, I, I swear <laughs> we I, I really wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of go a little bit further with some other yeah. stuff that because I ain't we we ain't even get a chance to talk about what's going on with uh Chloe Chloe from Chloe and Hallie right now and the censorship mm-hmm. and all of that stuff because I think that that's important especially for black men for us to be having these conversations with mm-hmm. each other because the the persecution that that young lady is suffering right now is just unreal. I, I really wish that we could. We're probably gonna have that conversation now that I think hey, I'm always down for a part two, you know. And but it's really, it just shows you like, and the way messages are even like, I feel like now it's even scary the way messages and the way information is transferred so much faster now, right? Through mm-hmm. social media versus like, you know, having to wait on hearing things through radio or through, through print. Then, like, the backlash one could receive and like just the policing of women's bodies, you know, it's mm-hmm. just disgusting now in so many different ways, right? And just how bodies are policed in different ways based off of like, you know, uh, what is attributed to, you know, you know, standards of beauty in, in, in essence, right? Or, you know, shaming in a lot of ways. So oh again, totally different conversation, but we can always get back into that. And oh, we will. oh, don't worry. Yeah. We, we, we got we got to come back to that one because I know I got students. My students in my class on Monday were ready to jump out their chairs on Zoom so we could have that convo. And I was like, to be continued, but I wasn't able to talk about it in class today. Let me ask you one last and final thing, and then I'll let you get out of here. So I know that for a lot of folks and a lot of students, they think of activism as this one thing. It's, yeah. it's protesting, it's rioting, it's loud. But the reality is that, as you were saying earlier, is that you know there's more than one way to be an activist. What's yeah. your message to that student who's thinking about coming to UT or that student who is thinking about being an RTF major that wants to send a message, but isn't sure that this is the proper medium or if they're the person that should be doing that. What's the message that you would give uh, to that student who's th- who's thinking that right now? Everyone plays a role. Um, you don't need to be at, on the front lines with the mega or mega or bullhorn uh, to be considered quote unquote activists or activator of change or an, a, a, for, a force, honestly, um, I think it goes back, <laughs> this film is, says, answer all these questions, so everyone needs to go. watch this film. But really, you mentioned like black rage and how it's manifested and also how it's expressed. You know, people think of like this angry black man or the angry black people like, no, this rage comes from a place, you know, it goes back from history. It's a transfer over from our ancestors. Mm-hmm. It is, in t- is, you know, I like, to, I hate to sometimes essentialize, but it is a thing that black people have in their bodies, right? From a natural place of of a history that's all you know uh, reflective yep. of how we are here and, and why, um, and look at the rage, the way in which rage is you know it's about how you manifest that rage and how you use that rage to like force or or to work for a change. So myself, I do that through you know teaching about media, making folks media literate, making folks realize that gain the information. The information's out there. So what are you going to do with the information? And also, if it's not out there, how are you going to make it? And how are you going to inter- interrogate the information that is out there so that they become better and so that people know that, you know, um, that is not the reality. So, right, it's about playing with reality and realizing that, you know, you have to uh, look at blackness in this way, in this fluid way, because we're not static. We're con- cons- constantly moving people. Mm-hmm. That's my way of, of doing it through our education. But your way can be doing it through art. You can be the person that creates the, the art that that is that is shown, in which you know um, that, that this political art that is that is shown that represents how you're feeling on the inside. How are you manifesting your rage in that way? You know, you can be an individual who is simply you know, uh, and I mean let's say simply working through you know uh, com- uh, computer sciences, 
creating those websites for individuals, teaching black folks how to code, teaching black folks how to manifest their money through stock. You see what just happened through the, through the stocks in Robinhood. Come on, man. Those are all points of reflection where you know, teaching people how to code with the jobs in tech, especially right now, the way in which we're living in this digital world, mm-hmm. your activism can be through the way you utilize computers and technology, right? Everyone has their role and you can do it in any space. They're, they're like being on the front lines, walking down the streets, you know, that is one great way to do it, you know, but that, that is, there's so many different ways to do it. And I think that anyone use, utilizing whatever you're interested in and, and folks think that, you know, I'm not doing enough, et cetera. You being here as a black person, I'm talking about black people specifically right now, is, is doing enough. You can be in a black student here, right? Seeing that, wearing that UT badge, right, is doing enough. But also, whether you're an athlete, whether you're, you know, working in student government, mm-hmm. whether you're, you know, simp- no, I mean, almost say simply, whether you are a student, simp- like trying to get their degree, <laughs> right? What it is you do with that. And it could be anything. There's any way you can utilize your activism. You could be that person that's, you know, in communications, like writing, writing these speeches, person making these phone calls. Your voice in space is so important. You know, you, I look at like uh, Stacey Abrams, right, who's now nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. That's after what Georgia did, after what Georgia did to her, you know, thinking like, you know, she can be off Georgia and people would understand. But what she did, she galvanized, went door to door, got people together, got people out to vote to numbers that Georgia's never seen before. And what's a seemingly small task, like it is completely changed uh, the American political system, uh, senators, the Georgia, the Georgia Senate, like, and really what's going to be the face of what's going on in like the, in, in America for the next at least four years. Mm-hmm. So everyone has a space in which they can manifest their activism. And I think that like you thinking that just because your role isn't necessarily the speaking person in the front line, mm-hmm. look at all these people who are a part of the, the cadre of individuals behind or next to a king or an ex or other folks, you know, they wouldn't be them without those individuals. And so knowing that, you know, what your place is matters in that activism mm-hmm. and it can be manifested in, in any way you have it. But you really like what, what's not going to help is not utilizing your voice. Right. And, and thinking that what you're doing isn't isn't working. Um, that's the disservice, I would say. Y'all, please, please, please make sure you commenting that you're liking, you're sharing, you're subscribing on whatever platform you're listening to this on, because this was this was a phenomenal conversation. Uh, Doc, if the students or if the people wanted to follow you or keep up with what you're doing, what's the best way for people to reach out to you or uh, to keep up with what you got going on? Well, you know, I definitely, uh, you know, Twitter is cool. It's Zebra PhD. Um, that's my Twitter. That's, you know, I'm always, but, you know, just know it's not just, you know, UT affiliated, you know, I talk a lot of trash on there too. So it is what it is, <laughs> uh, but it's public. Y'all can follow me, but also really, um, I'm really trying to work on uh, moving Mo- Moody in general, the Moody College of Communication, uh, much more of a affirming space for, for black students, black artists, Mm-hmm. Um, black creators, black voices, right? So I'm trying to do a lot of work with the, you know, Black Film Student Association and like bringing a voice in a space for black students there. Like that's my long-term goal. Like I want something that's going to be here that lasts longer than any of us that are here, a space for black students at Moody uh, who work who work in communication and work in communication sciences who work in advertising, public affairs, film, radio, TV, anything, you know. The communication is literally everything. We do it every day. And Black people, are, we, the way we communicate our culture, our ideas, our like with one another, 
the world wouldn't move without it. So to not have a space that communicates that and, and um, uplifts black students there is a disservice that I'm, I'm, I'm working uh, with Moody and the university at large to, to help remedy. Um, so really there'll be events in which I work with the, um, the, uh, the diversity space in Moody College Communication, where I'll have you know speakers come in, especially in this month, look out for I'll having you know speakers come in, mm-hmm. um, talking about the recent films, talk about you know art that's on the way, and I will do everything in collaboration with the Black Film Student Association and other students because at the end of the day, it's not about really about me as a faculty member, it's about how you all can utilize your voices as students, how you can galvanize, and how you can work to feel like you know the work you're doing is worth is worthwhile, and supported. And just know with me, at least you, you had that support through the Moody College Communications, you know, they're, uh, especially in RTF, you know, I'm the only, there's one black, one black professor in, in RTF studies, that's myself, and there's one in production, that's Brother Yaki Smith. Mm-hmm. So we're doing everything we can. And, you know, obviously, the space isn't going to look as it should until we get more folks like, like us in it. Um, and we're doing everything we can, because if it, if, it, if it doesn't look better than how we left it, then we didn't do our jobs. Mm. So I really just want to encourage you all to come to those spaces, come to these talks, uh, follow those Zoom links to everything that's happening this month uh, at Texas Moody regarding Black History Month. And I'll definitely be there to talk to you all. And I'm always available to pick up, pick your brain for ideas to see what's next, because I'm one person. But with the help of everybody else, you know, we can make this even better. Amen, brother. Appreciate that. Well, that's been our show. I really appreciate uh, Dr. Sebro for coming out and hanging with us today. Um, you all stay tuned every Friday, like a, like a good mixtape. We dropping, <laughs> dropping episodes every Friday. So y'all make sure y'all stay tuned in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. To catch the next installment, be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. We'll see you next time.